0: Welcome, everyone, to the Revolution 250 podcast. I am Bob Allison, the chair of the Revolution 250 Advisory Committee, and I teach history at Suffolk University. And we are delighted to have with us today Timothy Hall Breen, who is the emeritus William Smith Mason Professor of American History at Northwestern and also the James Marsh Professor at large at the University of Vermont. And he is the author of many books, including *Tobacco Culture: The Mentality of the Great Tidewater Planters*. Uh, Professor Green has really written about colonial America, and now he's been focusing for the last um, few years on the American Revolution, really recovering the stories of ordinary people. So, welcome, Professor Green, to the. Oh, program. Bob! It's a great, great pleasure to be with you today. Thank you. Yeah. So. So your book, The Will of the People, The Revolutionary Birth of America, is a look at communities and ordinary people. And I am um, really was really struck by your first chapter, Rejection. It deals with the charity that people showed to Boston during its moment of occupation in 1774. And I'd just like to talk a little bit about how that came about, how that bound people together. Right. Well, I think
1: in many accounts of the American Revolution, one has a sense of momentum, maybe all the way back to the Stamp Act crisis, and, and, and then the Americans, like a pressure cooker, are getting angrier and angrier, and then they, they finally say, enough already, uh, you know, like teenagers, we're going to go our separate way, and that's always been a compelling uh, narrative, but in in fact... At the moment of decision, uh, again in in little towns and throughout farm towns, most Americans were farmers or uh, around agriculture. It was a hard decision, but the the initial reaction was, "What? What? Why is this happening?" I mean, the empire was working pretty well. We're making money. We're safe. Uh, we just beat the French, and yet somehow it's suddenly gone sour and so the initial emotion was why are we being how do you make sense of rejection we're being pushed pushed away i think that that reverses the ordinary sense. but the but the 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 moment in which americans felt that something had gone very wrong was not the tea party which gets a lot of uh, interest but rather um Parliament's reaction and punishment to the Tea Party. It seemed totally inappropriate, disproportionate. A whole town would be shut down. People would be unemployed. There'd be a shortage of, of, of supplies like, like wood. And this sudden element of seeing an American city closed down and now occupied by an army You know that really that really focuses people's attention i i i would i would urge modern readers to think what would happen if a a city in america was occupied by the military i mean it's it's a different law a different regime and that was the moment in which people throughout america suddenly said we are boston we are in some way related to our fellow americans who are being op- 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 uh, militarily oppressed. And the charity you mentioned, I found a fascinating story. Um, uh, people from all over, including even the Caribbean islands, were sending um, money. And I'll tell you, it was damn hard to send. There was no, no checking accounts. I mean, you, all of no these exchanges uh, were, were difficult but highly symbolic of a growing network of ordinary people. There was nothing about this charity that involved the famous founders. It was not the idea of Washington. It was not the idea of Jefferson. It was a spontaneous outpouring by ordinary American men and women to um, addressing a political problem.
0: What kind of things would they send?
1: Well, <laughs> they sent money as much as they could, and I, like all charities, that was probably most welcome. Uh, people through New England tended to send uh, 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 sheep or, or, or food food stuff. My favorite was a uh, a self styled uh, patriot in New York who said, "You, you, you know, you don't need money and you need liquor," and uh, sent them uh, the said the, uh, a great hogshead of, of rum so they could get through the crisis. And no doubt he understood what unemployed seamen really wanted.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And you say that the Congress, when it meets, forms the Continental Association as a way of trying to get right. ahead of this.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, what, 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 what my book tries to show is that there was a growing network largely fed through newspapers and you know we, we talk about uh Facebook and all these things how it's affecting for good or ill our own lives but the but the Facebook of the American Revolution were very active uh newspapers and so there was a constant reporting going on about one town or one colony or state and what they were doing so that you would you would open a Boston newspaper or a Worcester paper, the, the, the famous one called the Massachusetts Spy. And you'd, you'd read about towns in New York and in Maryland who were agitating or are putting aside tea. Uh, and there was a, a growing sense that, there were, that those strangers out there, you didn't know people in Maryland, but they're with us. That that is the backbone of mobilization because you know frankly I think I think my students had to be reminded uh, about the revolution they had uh, seen the you know Rockwell Prince about you know uh, fifing and drumming your way to freedom you know most most people really don't welcome getting shot they really don't welcome sacrificing their own well their physical welfare and to make that 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 link that you know, yeah, we're go- we're going to send a, a flock of sheep up from Connecticut or Rhode Island to Boston. Was the 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 physical move that made ordinary people part of a revolutionary movement? Yes, and and I, I again, you know, I don't, I never mean to demean or underestimate the contribution of the of the founding fathers. I think this is a parallel and interactive story. Um, and, 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 I mean, no, no, no. Certainly, I wrote a book earlier on George Washington, and mm-hmm. as people, I told people, the more I studied George Washington, the more I admired him. He's one of the few people that uh, I, I, I could understand. I'm I'm of Irish background. I could understand the Irish troops that that, with unquestioned loyalty, you know, followed him. Mm -hmm. But Washington alone is not the revolution make.
0: Right, right. Well, we're on the subject of the communication network. You also talk a bit about the kind of conspiracy theories and the fear that uh, fear of a Quaker conspiracy. And this guy, Henry Stone in the town of Stoughton, has this letter purportedly from Charles Lee warning about something happening in Congress and then Mm -hmm. Congress in hearing about. The British firing on Boston. That is, you have all these wild rumors that circulate, which is an astonishing thing.
1: one of the stories that, um, uh, you're you're quite correct, that um, in a period of political uncertainty, uh, also, shall we say, uh, with the addition of fear, it can can lead to people uh, being receptive to whatever stories. I mean, we see it in our own time, but uh, on the eve of, um, well, well before Bunker Hill and, and uh, Lexington and Concord, there was a, um, a a rumor, and you just just think of how crazy it is that for that the Bo- that the British had bombarded and were in the act of destroying Boston. This is uh, when, the, well, I mean, since they lived there and they were camped there, it's a little awkward to bomb their own people, but uh, th- that didn't stop the conspiracy any more than the ones today. Um, what is interesting is the rumor that, uh, that the people of Boston were being uh, endangered and, and killed set off a spontaneous rising of troops from uh, uh, all the New England colonies in, uh, or states, by this, including uh, the people from um, uh, Vermont. And it's estimated that this spontaneous rising there are no generals. There's not even Israel Putnam yet. As many as 20,000 Americans uh, mm-hmm. uh, marched towards Boston to save Boston. Now, it turned out when they got there, Boston looked like, it was fine. I mean, it was another, another great day in Boston. Um, what the important factor is that this growing network of, of sense on the popular, on the ground level, that we have to um, act together. If, we, if, we, if, we, if, we, if we're, you know, it's a cliche, but they, res- they understood almost instinctively that if there were noticeable divisions within the American people, they didn't have a chance against the British. That was the strongest military Navy force in the world. I mean, it was probably the strongest since Rome. And the English would have loved to pick off one or two colonies. They tried it. They tried to get Massachusetts later. They tried to hive hive off Georgia and South Carolina. Fortunately, it didn't work. It didn't work for precisely the, the what I, what you and I are talking about in the uh, themes that I develop in this book, uh, the will of the people. The people willed unity.
0: And you also address this big question, I think we all have, of why didn't the Americans call it quits? Because things start to go very badly in 1778, 79. Really, financially, the country is broke. Right. The currency collapses. Can we talk right. a little bit about the crisis?
1: Yeah, that uh, I, I think again, um, you, your you're general student of the American Revolution, uh, there's what I call the uh, uh, lily pad uh, version. In other words, you have um, Lexington Concord, and Concord, then you leap on your Bunker Hill then you have a couple of battles and it's, you know, it, it's bad and good, but the war is over. And then you have the constitution. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, we, we, it's foreordained. The Lord is behind us, but you're quite correct. In 1778, um, the revolution could have dissolved because of uh, inflation and um, far, uh, uh the whole links of trade between cities and farmlands was was broken because of uh, f- uh, suspicion that each side was uh, trying to gain an upper hand. And so there were uh, the newspapers. Again, I mean, if any of your listeners want to read about the crisis, the newspapers were filled with stories about profiteers, speculators, extortionists who uh, were trying to use... So what we see in 1778, Bob, is very interesting. The problem is not Tories or Loyalists, but other Americans who said they were supporting the revolution, but also wanted to make a little money off the situation, or they were playing. Now, this has happened in other wars. It's an ugly story. But um, what I found, again, as in the earlier examples, is how did the American people react to this crisis? Now, they could have said, hell, let's write a letter to George III, and we, we made a mistake. Take us back. That is not what they did, nor did they necessarily break with Congress, which was a kind of feckless organization at that time. But in town after town, especially in New England, I found committees of ordinary citizens trying to deal with the economic crisis. It's a beautiful story. They set prices for labor and for goods and whatnot. Now, as an economist or a person who studied economics, as you, I'm sure, have, it, it couldn't possibly work the inflationary cycles were even then international they had to deal with currency exchanges so that when salem or newburyport got a committee together to fight inflation it was probably doomed but that didn't stop them in other words they were supporting the american revolution by trying to deal in their communities with uh, this crisis and it was it was really wide wide widespread uh even even in in the in the middle colonies like pennsylvania and uh maryland i found uh, this willingness to um address at the community level an untold and original story about our revolution and i hope readers of my book get that point it's 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 a it's it's a story of how people in crisis react um, at times of peril. It's and true. they generally, Americans, have a good, good record. Um, uh, I, I, one of the elements about our revolution is that there were never uh, a moment of terror, like the revolution in France or the Gulag and whatnot. By and large, Even in times of immense fear, Americans restrained themselves from turning on their immediate neighbors with violence. Now, I understand, and your listeners will say, oh, well, but I mean, look at the the terrors of the American Indians and and African-American slaves, and they're quite right. These were hideous situations. But in the communities that were largely these farm communities, uh, at the worst moments of fear, when you 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 you, you, you know, there there was possibilities that loyalists would burn your barn down or kill your cattle or something. Uh, there was, I found no examples of um, widespread revenge or violence and, uh, of the kind I would have expected. Uh, there was this there was an, a, a feeling at the base level that somehow, even in the most trying conditions, we should ma- maintain the, the basic rudiments of a rule of law. You know, you know okay. no matter how bad your neighbor was, maybe we should we should tr- listen to him. maybe we should in, uh, interrogate him or her. There were hers, too. I found that interesting, too, that that not that necessarily that the revolutionaries uh, didn't make mistakes, and let me just say right now I don't romanticize ordinary people; sometimes they were pretty nasty and ugly. That happens in revolutions, but um their record of figuring out. Over eight years of war, how to sustain themselves, and then when it was over, not engaging in a bloodbath of revenge, is really one of the most amazing aspects of our revolutionary story, and it is usually not told. I guess we assume that that's what good people do, and but besides, we have a constitution to get to, and so we jump from Yorktown to Philadelphia.
0: Yeah, but we I, and I think we've had enough examples in in recent years. It doesn't stop that your neighbors from not killing each other in a lot of places, and you have do have some of these interesting episodes, like uh, in New York um, establishes an emergency committee and it exiles about two hundred people to Exeter, New Hampshire, and New Hampshire wants to know what these people did.
1: Right. How come- but yeah well i mean i found that story here uh the new york is uh in, in real danger there's armies in the north and, and the british have taken over the city and um and, and maybe in an ugly way the committees in new york uh run by a, a man who was really the hammer of revolution by the way he's overlooked is jay john jay but uh so yeah they rounded up about 250 uh, suspicious guys they were guys, and sent them to New Hampshire New Hampshire w- was willing to take them I think uh, also brought a little money to the state, but whatever uh, they were up there and they were enjoying they said now look you if you're Tories you want don't go don't go walking around the town talking about the king or parliament in other words that's, that would be subversive don't do that they didn't what they did is they walked around town and they said, as Americans, we were denied our rights. There was no due process. We, we want to know why, why, why are we here? And so people in Massachusetts began to write their legislation. What, what, what's going on? Why, why, why are these people uh, present? Uh, and, and the whole thing, then after about a year, they were all sent back to uh, the Hudson Valley.
0: Another issue. I mean, we you, you were we were talking before about the project you're working on now involving prisoners of war, because that's another area we really don't talk about. How many prisoners were here? Germans, British, being mm-hmm. held in different places. Can you talk a little bit about the experience of these guys?
1: Right. There's there's a new new book, and I wish I could remember the author's name. A young young historian who teaches at Purdue has just written a book about. Uh, prisoners of war and it's very interesting uh, uh a book and another one of my students has just written a very interesting book called occupied america and it's about uh what people in the in uh, the major sports cities how they uh, dealt with uh, prisoners and whatnot but um uh, my current research is uh Fascinating. It's about uh, Cambridge. We had a population during the revolution of about 1500 people. That included all the Harvard students and professors. It's a small New England town. In the fall of 1777, um, because of, uh, after the uh, uh, surrender of Burgoyne's army at Saratoga, 6,500 troops suddenly were dumped in, in Cambridge. Uh, half of them were German speakers. There were large numbers of women and children, of dependents, and um, suddenly an American town had to find uh, firewood, clothing, uh, housing. Uh, it was it was an absolute trauma f- for the Americans, and it was no picnic for the prisoners because uh, the winter of seventeen seventy seven and seventeen spring of seventy eight was one of the hardest winters uh in new england i mean well like we know it was snow and cold and, and rain and mud and uh uh it, it was an extreme but one of the thrusts of my new book is that the americans around boston at least seeing burgoyne seeing the british troops crystallized their own sense of what the revolution meant may most of us live in a world in which events are far from us they're in washington they're in afghanistan they don't directly touch our lives when we go to the store to the doctor's office here suddenly in this case that i'm writing about people were confronted with 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 the revolution and and again another moment of getting getting through it had to do and it's a fascinating story that i'm getting ahead of myself but the americans uh obviously were really annoyed with the british and willing to fight and die on the other hand even they couldn't break the cultural tie right and the even in the midst of the war they'd say um all right, we're, we're going to have a prison camp, and we're going to handle it by these and those rules. And then they'd say to the British, did, did we get it right? Are, 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 are we following the proper rules? They, want, they still wanted the British to think well of them, even as they were fighting for independence. And this this ambivalence and strain I've picked up in lots of my own research, and right now I'm trying to put it together. I mean, it, technically, it's the problem of of, of post-colonial mentality. You want to be Americans, but you want to be Americans that your old enemies respected. You're respecting and uh, and so Burgoyne as a as a as a figure. Uh, Uh, galvanize these feelings because he was he was so arrogant and so condescending and yet boy did he talk nice he was really British you know that kind of tensions were were in the air yeah
0: it's amazing uh it's T. Cole Jones's book The Captives of Liberty we were trying to think of a a couple of minutes ago. Now, I mean, you really dig into these stories that you dig out of the archives and really recover them. And one we were talking about earlier goes back to 1768 and the story of Arthur and it was turned into an opera. Which, uh, can you tell us a little bit about that story?
1: Yes, um, uh, a lot of my, my best, work is serendipitous. uh, And um, I found uh, a document from 1768, printed in Worcester, uh, called The Last Dying Confession of Arthur. We don't know his last name. He was a uh, black uh, slave. Uh, He was originally a slave in Taunton. And then he was sold by various people. And he found his way up to um, not Worcester, but Barrie, uh recently renamed from Hutcheson, Massachusetts to Barrie, Massachusetts. Uh, and he was a, a rascal and an adventurer and a lovable guy, uh, and constantly getting in trouble. And uh but he was accused of a crime that he no doubt didn't uh commit and uh was uh, was was uh, executed and so I reconstructed as best I could uh, the, the life of uh, this remarkable, uh, he was just almost a teenager, remarkably uh, bright and, and uh, uh, winsome, uh, black, black youth. And um, so, uh, you know, it was, it, the, it was published in one of those academic articles that you and I have to read as scholars and you know, we barely can get through them. Uh, and, but I gave a talk at the National Humanities Center in north carolina on on this work and to my immense surprise a very very uh uh, distinguished uh black composer by the name of tj anderson came up after the audience had left and he said to to me he said professor would you mind if i turned your paper into a a full-length opera i mean you don't get that reaction in many lectures i'm sure bob ever <laughs> um, he had a very dear friend um yokum uh, another uh leading black artist uh, who won a pulitzer prize in the 1990s for his work and he did the libretto mm. and um uh, it was called slipknot and was produced by the northwestern school of music and we had a number of performances but um what I discovered, what we all discovered um, uh, when we, we approached uh, large uh, opera companies to uh, push this project further, that the entering bid was about $2 million, just just to think of, of costuming and, and uh, orchestra. So it was a wonderful moment. And uh, working together um, about uh, Arthur's life and my research took me to uh, to Barry. I wrote uh, another article about uh, uh, hist- history in Barry. It's a it's a very interesting and content. But in the course of my research, this is none b- because Boston drinks water from the Ware River Valley. They they uh, long ago uh, the authorities just uh, fenced off so people wouldn't go there and put garbage in the water, whatever. And this accidentally preserved the foundation of the house in which Arthur was accused of having committed a terrible crime. And I tell you, it's not many times that a historian who is just going through archives and papers suddenly finds, in a sense, the the physical remains of of a place where something happened for an ordinary, in this case a, a black a young black man. That I love I love moment as a historian, that's what makes my days.
0: Right. That that that's a great a great story, just the story of Arthur and then the story of how you uncovered so much of this. As as you did, you know you've done in your other work, really looking at things as they were and things, um, ordinary folks. I was really, um, struck by Ezekiel Russell, this printer in Danvers who writes right. this play, The Downfall of Justice. Is-
1: well, that's, that's very interesting because, um, uh, in November I got a call from a repertory theater. Uh, now, um, socially distancing repertory theater in new york city and they uh, th- on the basis of my book uh, will of the people they uh, put on um uh, russell's uh, play and then after it was over uh, uh on a zoom i explained to the audience its uh, uh important significance but uh it, this this play was published um uh in uh in massachusetts and it had an amazing group if if any of your your viewers or listeners hear uh, of, of woodcuts which are or, uh, which were very expensive especially mm-hmm. in 1777 and 78 when the economies i mean he was a quite an adventure uh, i suspect it also indicates that the issues that the play raise um uh, were powerful enough to sustain a commercial uh, venture. In any case, it's, a, it's about a rebarbative, self-important, nasty family that is having Thanksgiving, and they're, they're in one point, the, the uh, head of the household, um, a very repugnant man, it has to undo his trousers because he's eaten too much uh, uh, food and whatnot. They make racist jokes about Indians and the poor. They make jokes about their poor neighbors. And the one person in the play that stands up, and this is very interesting to me, uh, Mom, the one person that stands up is a black, presumably slave, by the name of Jack. That's all we know. And Jack says, right to his master in this place, says, you know, it's just not right to starve the poor. You have an obligation to your neighbors, not not just see them as profit centers, but see them as, you know, some engage in some humanity, which of course, you know, a real slave would have probably not survived that evening. But um, all the in the play, he's just told to shut up and mind his own business. But the idea that in Massachusetts during the revolution, the, the voice of humanity and decency had to come through the character of an African-American is very interesting.
0: It's a fascinating story, so that actually might have been the world premiere last fall of
1: I suspect it was the world world premiere and it it got a it's look it 's a clumsy uh form a play uh, but it it got it, uh, the, it was had a very good reception
0: that 's great it That's- was
1: part of uh, uh, I, I suspect um uh our 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 sensitivity to uh black history uh, at, at these times it wasn't you know february is black history month but there 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 you know the whole black lives matter movement uh brought to attention these kinds of sources that otherwise would have been overlooked
0: right well thank you very much you professor green for joining us this morning this has been a great discussion of these issues so thank you and i want to thank jonathan lane our producer and the revolution 250 coordinator and our musicians who will play road to boston doug quigley and peter emmerich on the fife dave emmerich on the drums and thank you professor breen and
1: well thank you bob it's been a great uh, great conversation and you're doing uh, great great work with uh, revolution 250 i commend you
0: thank